Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, so it is correct on the screen. And I thought it was just when I preach, the scripture is normally off, um, or I give you the wrong page number. So I say this with 99% certainty. I believe it is 1203 in your pew Bible, where 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 begins. So we're going to read these verses, and as you can see on the screen, we're going to carry over a couple of verses into the second chapter. So here, beginning in verse 22, the word of the Lord reads, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Please join me in praying. Lord, we thank you for your people gathered here this morning. We pray that your word would speak to us, that our attention would be focused on you, and that we may gain something out of your word so that we would better glorify you as we move forward in our spiritual journey. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, just to bring us back up to speed a little bit, um, we, we know one of the main themes in First Peter is suffering and enduring suffering. And so last week, Pastor Nathan talked about um, knowing and acting like we know that Jesus is coming back and our lives should look like that, um, that we believe and act like he's coming back tomorrow, that we're not negligent and that our Christian lives look like it. And so in our verses today, I actually really enjoy these because there's some instructions in here that are kind of straightforward. So like the book of James, one of my favorites, he, he's really just cut and dry. Here's how you should be living. Here's what you should be doing. Here's what you shouldn't be doing. We get some of that in the end of this chapter in the beginning of chapter 2 from Peter. So his foundation for starting us out, he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So having purified your souls, he says, because you have been saved, because you've received the Holy Spirit, because you've been redeemed and bought with the most high price, because you are a Christian. So he, again, reminds us he is speaking to Christians here. So he says, because you've received salvation, everything else he says is applicable and is meant for us. So he starts out by saying, because of this sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that sounds great, love one another earnestly. But I think what happens a lot of times as we come to church each week, we hear these familiar phrases, and they sound good, like love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, love is gentle and kind. And we agree and nod, but what happens is because we hear it so much, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And we really lose the weight of what the Bible is trying to say to us. So right here, 
this love that he's talking about, he says love earnestly. That means intensely. So with this intense brotherly love, we are to love one another. And right here, we see great dividends of just going a little deeper because the love that Peter is describing is biblical love. And that love is very different from what people outside of the church or even in many progressive circles of church would describe as love. See, outside of what God describes as love, there's this wrongly associated um, love means affirming and just accepting. So Jesus is love, God is love, we just love people. And it sounds great on paper, but the problem is is that biblical love and this love that Peter is describing, see, this love doesn't affirm sin, it confronts it. And we don't like to um, confront people. We don't like to be confronted when it comes to sin, but nonetheless, this is the love, the biblical love that Peter describes. And, and why we don't like to do that is because it's hard. When we see someone we, we love, we know they're struggling, it's awkward to have to have a conversation with them. You know what it's easier to do is just to not say anything and mind our own business. But I just want to say to you, one of the most unloving things you can do is see someone you love struggling in sin and remain silent and not try to hold them accountable and help them. One of the best things a Christian can have in their life is godly friends that love them enough to say, hey, because I love you, I want to see you following Jesus. I want to see you walking in accordance to God's word. And you're not, so we need to have a conversation about it. That is one of the best things that you can have in your life, is somebody to hold you accountable. But one of the reasons we don't like being held, excuse me, why we don't like holding people accountable is we don't like it ourselves. See, when people try and call us out, and I have to preface this, when I say call out or accountable, I'm talking in gentleness and love and respect, not in being smug or arrogant or hateful. But see, when people come to us sincerely trying to hold us accountable or correct us or call us out, our natural response is, well, who does this person think they are? You think just because we're friends, you can, we get defensive, we get angry. Or another reason why we don't like to hold people accountable, at the end of verse 22, Peter says, this brotherly love is to be from a pure heart. Another translation I read, it says, without hypocrisy. So if we are struggling with sin in our lives that we're not willing to address or be accountable to, then what happens when we see other people? Well, who am I to call them out because I've got my own struggles? And so what happens is it creates this vicious cycle. See, I'm struggling with sin. I don't want to be accountable, so I can't hold other people accountable. And round and round it goes, and it's not honoring God, and it's not how Peter is instructing us, according to Scripture, how we should live. So being without hypocrisy is a key thing. See, it looks different when, when we are without hypocrisy. We're able to go to someone we love and say, hey, I noticed you're struggling in this area, in this area because I love you. I, I want to have a conversation about it. I want to pray over you. I want to hold you accountable. See, at my old church, uh, the pastor, he would, when he was encouraging the congregation to invite people to church, he would give some hypotheticals. Uh, reasons why people might be scared to invite people to church. 
And one of them that, that he gave was, what if they say, well, I don't want to go to church because Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. And then he would get the biggest smile on his face and say, tell them, yeah, and we got room for one more. Come on in. And everyone would laugh. But the problem is he would just move on. And see, there's a difference between a, kind of a soft approach to saying, like, yeah, we're hypocrites. Come join us. There are hypocrites in church, but that does not mean because we are struggling with sin for a season or, or we're wrestling through something, that does not make us hypocrites. And Jesus, Paul, and Peter all talk about it. Peter actually talks about it in some later verses we'll get to. But see, being without hypocrisy doesn't mean being perfect, but it does mean that we are walking in obedience and that we are able to love others with this earnest brotherly love that Peter describes. And then he continues... Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. See, this was so interesting to me, that word imperishable. When we say that, I hope I'm not the only one, we probably all think of like canned goods, non-perishable, right? So we understand it's something that doesn't go bad or decay. But something in reading this and studying this, it just fascinated me, that word. And so uh, I really dug in, and my wife, I think, last week came into my office. There was Bibles everywhere and papers, and she's like, are you trying to learn Greek? What's going on in here? And uh, I'm so glad that I really dug in because I, I found that term that is used for imperishable is used seven other times in the New Testament. But one of my favorite words that they're synonymous is immortal. So the seed the foundation of our faith, it says, is immortal, as is the living and enduring word of God. And this is so important because this might come as a surprise to you, but our culture doesn't always like the Bible or what the Bible has to say. And so one of the silliest arguments that's most common that I hear is, well, that was written like 2,000 years ago, and it was meant for certain people, and it's not applicable today. We've evolved. We're wiser. We have technology. And, and they act like God's Word is like a cassette player, and it's outdated, and it's silly. No one should use it. And it's a disgrace to God's Word because here Peter is saying that it, it's living and enduring. And he's talking about the importance of Scripture. And what also happens... And why we need to really understand the weight of what Peter is saying when, he, when he's describing God's word here is many times when people don't like what the Bible says, whether atheist, progressive Christianity, or, or anywhere in between, I've noticed in my experience and in, in any experience that I've witnessed, it's always, well, you know what I think is X, Y, Z. And I feel that X, Y, Z about the Bible See, it always starts with, I think, so my opinion about the Bible, or I feel God should have done this, or the Scripture should mean this. And why that is important for us, and, and Peter's describing this in living and enduring Word of God, is that we've got to be in His Word. And it sounds like a pastor thing to say, read your Bible, but, but the importance here is that if we are not in God's Word, if we're not studying it, praying over it, meditating on it, what happens is we walk out on a very dangerous and thin ice. 
We are susceptible to, to hear what people's opinions about the Bible is or misinterpretations or what their feelings about what the Bible should say instead of what God actually says in his word. So Peter is really hammering home here. And then you'll never guess as we continue what he decides to quote. The Bible. Imagine that. Who could have predicted that? So, so look at this. It's actually fascinating. Here's what he says. He, he quotes Isaiah 40. He says, All flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So he says people's feelings about the Bible, their opinions about the Bible, technology, human flesh, everything decays and falls away. But God's word remains forever. And then he says this, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So if you are sitting here and you are a Christian, he is saying the gospel that was preached to you was from God's word. And what's so interesting about him quoting this passage, we earlier heard the, the argument about, well, it's outdated. So from the time that Peter writes this passage we're in to when Isaiah 40 was written, there is almost an 800-year gap. But you see, Peter didn't approach it as, well, you know, that was probably true about 800 years ago, but it's irrelevant, we've evolved, we have technology. No, he said 800 years later, God's word is still the only thing that endures forever, not human flesh and not human's thoughts on what God's word should say. And so... At the beginning of chapter 2, you'll probably think this is weird, and it is. One of my favorite words begins chapter 2, and it says, so. S-O. One of the translations I read, it says, therefore. I think that sounds a little proper, like, therefore. But what happens when you hear the word, therefore? If somebody's talking to you and they say, therefore, what happens is you really focus in. Because, oh, I'm going to get some great information and then it also causes us to be like, I really hope I remembered what they just said and was paying attention. So hopefully you've paid attention this morning and the last two weeks that Pastor Nathan has been preaching through this chapter. But he says, because your soul has been purified, because you've been saved, he talks about because of the truth based in Scripture. He says, because of all that, so, and then he gives us a list of things that we are to put away. So he says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now, trying to be a Christian after God's own heart, I don't think there's any one of us in here that wants any of these words used to describe us. But just for fun, you all understand these are negative uh, words that he's using and, and things he's telling us to put off. But just for fun, so it really cements how heavy these things are. Uh, malice is the desire to do evil. Deceit is to deceive by concealing or misrepresenting truth. Hypocrisy is claiming to have high moral standards that you do not live by. There's that word again, hypocrisy. Then he moves on to envy, resent or discontentment over someone else's possessions or qualities. And he ends with slander, false or damaging statements about others. And so... This is where I have to give you some clarity. Um, if you hear these things, you can leave here inspired and say, I'm going to put all these things away. I'm going to put away malice. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And that's all great. But there's some clarity I need to bring you, that this is not just a, a moral, feel-good pep talk. 
that Peter is suggesting for us. See, before I was saved, I attended church for a few months, and each week, I'm like, man, this sermon's great. I'm going to apply this to my life. I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm going to be a new me. And I would go to work, and Monday morning by 5 a.m., it was all gone, out the window. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm trying really hard. What's wrong? And in this same way, if you are reading this and you're saying, I'm going to try really hard to be a better person, see, these things that Peter is telling us to put away are only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are not saved, if you have not been transformed by the gospel of Jesus, then you are trying to put these things away in vain. And because of the Holy Spirit, we are able to not perfectly but to put these things away so that we can better glorify God and better love others with that same brotherly love that he talked about. And then he continues. So I feel like Peter is just hammering home the importance of God's word for me here. But he continues talking about God's word. After he tells us to put these things away, he reminds us that through only the power of the Holy Spirit He says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, maybe that rang a bell for you, and if you didn't, uh, Paul actually uses that same analogy of spiritual milk. In 1 Corinthians 3, he uses it in a negative term. See, he's rebuking the Corinthians because they've been so immature and lacking in their spiritual growth and their commitment to the authority of Scripture that when he comes And writes to them, he says, I had to bring you adults, infant milk, because you can't even handle solid food right now. But see, Peter takes that that same approach, but he actually uses it in a positive light. So he says, as a newborn infant longs for milk, the only thing they need to survive, to grow, for their nourishment, the only thing they desire in that same way that that infant desires and needs only that milk for growth, he says, you and I are to desire God's truth in his word in that way. The only authority we need, the only thing we need for growth and nourishment. And then he concludes by quoting a psalm. You've probably heard it. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as we we close, I want to really emphasize this. All of the truth that Peter is giving to us, the instruction is centered around the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died, rose again after three days, bore the penalty for your sin on the cross so that you can be redeemed. Without that, none of this matters. That is the foundation that holds us all together. And so he says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, and can I say, if you have been redeemed, if the penalty of your sins has been forgiven by God's mercy and grace, if you have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is zero doubt that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so I encourage you, why not, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, Share that goodness with as many people and family members as we can. Why not be willing to accept accountability and hold others accountable out of this this fervent and this earnest love? Why not, as Christians, live our lives 
as if we know that Jesus is coming back. Amen. So I'd like to invite you, as we're going to stand and sing, if you would like to come forward and join First Christian Church of the Beaches, or if you would like to profess Jesus publicly as your Lord and Savior, you can come forward and see Pastor Nathan or myself.